Well, today, after all these many months, we will conclude our series focused on the greatest sermon ever told, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The sermon might be somewhat familiar to you, but today I'd like you to try to make it strange. I want us to imagine what it would have been like for us to hear Jesus speak these words for the very first time. How would we have processed what Jesus said? How would we have responded to this sermon? Many people, including people of other faiths or of no faith at all, would say that the Sermon on the Mount represents some of the most beautiful, some of the most exquisite, some of the most sublime religious instruction that's out there. It's filled with great insight and beautiful words, startling pictures and moving illustrations, and it's chock full of memorable sayings. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Turn the other cheek. Go the second mile. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Judge not. And of course, the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Beautiful stuff. But increasingly, I think that more and more people would say that you can separate the teaching from the teacher. In other words, someone might say, well, I can accept the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount without having to believe anything in particular about Jesus. So people assume that you can separate the teaching from the teacher. Now, in almost every other religion, that's true because in every other religion, the, the teaching is primary and the teacher is secondary. So you can hold on to the teaching and you can discard the teacher. For example, even if Buddha never existed, you still got the Eightfold Path. Or even if Muhammad never existed, you still got the Five Pillars of Islam. So people assume you can separate the teaching from the teacher. But when it comes to the Sermon on the Mount, you run into a difficulty because if you try to separate the Sermon on the Mount from Jesus, the whole message falls apart. If you don't understand something about who Jesus is, then his words become ludicrous and nonsensical. If you separate the teacher from the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount, then the commands in this sermon become a crushing weight because in every other in every other religion, the teaching is primary and the teacher is secondary, but in Christianity, it's the exact opposite, where the teacher is primary and the teaching is secondary. And why is that? Because the heart of the Christian message is not good advice, it's good news. Christianity is not telling you what you need to do in order to reach God. No, the essence of the Christian message is Jesus is telling you what God has done to reach you. And so by the time you reach the end of the Sermon on the Mount, if you understand that, the question you should be asking is not, what do I make of this teaching? But rather, what do I make of this teacher? He is altogether in a category of his own. So here's what I want us to do. Today, I'd like to read a few extracts from both the beginning and the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to zero in on the response of the crowds. The final verses tell us that when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished. They were astonished at what they had heard. Now, that's interesting. 
that should cause us to stop and ask ourselves, are we astonished by the Sermon on the Mount? And if not, why not? If Jesus' words don't astonish us, well, then perhaps that means that we haven't really heard them or we haven't heard them accurately or rightly. So what I'd like to show you is that the crowds were astonished for at least three reasons. They, they were astonished by the form of Jesus' teaching. They were astonished by the focus of Jesus' teaching. And they were astonished by the force of Jesus' teaching. So we'll consider each of those three things in turn. The form, the focus, and the force. And as we do, I'd like us to consider not only the crowd's response to this sermon, but your own. So if you would, let me invite you to open up a Bible to Matthew chapter 5, as well as chapter 7. You'll find this passage printed beginning on page 809 in the Pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, and Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and 25, and verses 28 and 29. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Will you please pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray that by your grace, the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that your word might astonish us so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a real encounter with Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus sees the crowd, and therefore he went up on the mountain. And that's why it's called the Sermon on the Mount. Despite what some people think, it's not called the Sermon on the Mount because it was a sermon delivered while mounted on horseback. It was delivered from a mountain. So Jesus goes up the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now, in Jesus' culture, people sat in order to teach. So Jesus assumes the posture of a teacher. And he's primarily addressing the disciples, his immediate band of followers, but he expects the crowds to look on and to listen in. And that is the primary contrast that Jesus draws throughout the Sermon on the Mount. You've got the disciples, Jesus' followers on the one hand, and the crowds on the other. It's instructive to note that in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew refers to the crowds 
at least 46 times. These are the people who heard Jesus' words. They saw Jesus' actions. They were often amazed at what they heard and what they saw, but the crowds come and they go. They drift in and they drift out. On the day that we know as Palm Sunday, for example, the crowds gather and they greet Jesus with a cheer. They cry out, Hosanna, as Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. But before that week is through, those crowds' cheers turn into a jeer. And now the crowds cry out, crucify him, handing Jesus over to his imminent death. So the crowds prove to be rather fickle and inconsistent. And yet for all that, Jesus had nothing but love for the crowds. Matthew chapter 9, verse 36 tells us that when Jesus saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because he knew that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. But the point is that Jesus understood that most people live life as part of a crowd. We seem to drift. We just go with the flow. Many people never really stop to think and to ask themselves, well, what do I really believe and why? What do I really value in life and why? How am I actually living my life and why? And I think especially for us as modern people, it's especially easy for us to fall into that trap and to just drift through life because we're so comfortable and we're, because we're so busy and we're so distracted by our smartphones and our devices, we never stop to ask the big questions. And so Jesus calls this the wide road and the easy path. It's the path of least resistance, but it is a house, it is a life that's built on sand. And so Jesus' invitation to all of us is to leave the crowds, to leave the crowds behind and to become one of his disciples to become a student, to become an apprentice of Jesus until his life becomes our own. So at the beginning, Jesus primarily addresses the disciples, but the crowds are looking on and listening in. And then when we get to the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we realize that the crowds are astonished. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. They're amazed by what they heard. And in fact, the word that Matthew uses there is dumbfounded. Jesus' words left them absolutely speechless. But why is that? Well, they were astonished by the form of Jesus' teaching, by the focus of Jesus' teaching, and by the force of Jesus' teaching. See, first, they were astonished by the form of Jesus' teaching, meaning they were amazed by the way in which he taught, the manner in which he taught. He taught as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, the closest analogy to a scribe was perhaps a lawyer. So imagine yourself in a law court. Scribes did not claim any authority of their own. Instead, their job was to cite precedent. And so they would try to build a case by finding one famous person or another that they could quote who would 
back up their argument. So they were always quoting other people. They were never offering new ideas themselves. And you know what? This is what pastors do all the time too. Pastors are not trying to be original. Pastors are usually just trying to tell you what the Bible says, or maybe we'll quote other people who tell you what the Bible says. So if you've been here long enough, you know some of the people that I quote all the time. C.S. Lewis, John Stott, N.T. Wright. We're not trying to be original. So we've all heard sermons like this, maybe just a string of quotations. And that might give the impression of learning or culture, perhaps, but nothing new was ever offered by the scribes. And so you may not have noticed this before, but the surprising thing about Jesus' teaching, one of the things that really astonished people was his creativity. It was Jesus' originality. There, there was a freshness to his teaching. The scribes might have spoken by authority, but Jesus spoke with authority. He spoke with utter confidence, and he didn't have to quote anybody from the past. No, he spoke on his own word. And notice that Jesus also didn't speak like the Old Testament prophets. Because in the Hebrew scriptures, what would the prophets preface all their words with? Do you remember the saying? Thus says the Lord. Do you realize that Jesus never said that? Jesus never said, thus says the Lord. Do you know what Jesus said instead? He would always preface his words by saying, truly, truly, I say to you, Amazing originality. Jesus spoke in his own name and by his own authority, and he never bothered to check with anybody else to see if he'd gotten it right. So the crowds were astonished by the form of Jesus' teaching, but that's not all. They were also astonished by the focus of his teaching. Almost every religious teacher is self-effacing. And by that, I mean that religious teachers try not to draw too much attention to themselves. All right, it would be weird, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be weird if you had a preacher or a teacher who was constantly talking about themselves, constantly referring back to themselves? So most religious teachers are self-effacing, but that's what's so strange. Jesus was self-advancing. He was constantly referring people back to himself through his teaching, and that's all the more striking when you contrast Jesus' words with his actions. Because Jesus was other-centered in his actions, and yet intensely self-centered in his teaching. Let me just give you a couple examples of this, and I'll draw them all from the Sermon on the Mount. It would be easy to gloss over some of these things, but, but listen and imagine anyone else saying these kinds of things. See, first of all, let's begin with the Beatitudes. Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount with these statements of blessing. And first of all, Jesus is telling us who is blessed in God's eyes, definitively, without any doubt or question. He's, he's not offering it up as a, as a possibility or a mere supposition. He knows. He's telling you who will be blessed in the eyes of God. But pay attention in particular to the final beatitude. He says, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of things against you falsely on my account. Now, you might expect Jesus to say, well, blessed are you if you are misunderstood for standing for the truth, or blessed are you if you are mistreated because you're engaged in God's cause. That would sound normal to us. But Jesus says, blessed are you if you are misunderstood or mistreated on my account. 
because of your close identification with me. But that's not all. A little bit later, he says, think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, the law and the prophets was a shorthand way of referring to the Hebrew scriptures, the entire Old Testament. Now, just imagine for a moment somebody else saying something like this. It would be shocking if somebody said, look, everything written here, everything here in the Bible, it's all ultimately pointing to me, even down to the smallest little detail. Not a word, not an iota, not a dot will pass from this law until everything is accomplished. He's saying, everything in the scriptures is ultimately going to be fulfilled by me. I'm not gonna abolish any of it. I'm gonna fulfill it all. It's all pointing to me. And pay attention as well to the awkward phrasing here. He doesn't say, I was born to fulfill the law and the prophets. He says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now. Not only is he saying that he wasn't born in the usual way, but he has come. He, he's come into this world supposedly from somewhere else. Where did he come from? But then finally, consider some of the words we examined last week at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, on the one hand, he is suggesting that people will refer to him as Lord at the, end of the t- at the end of time. He receives that title for himself. But he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So many people will address him as Lord, but only some will mean it. And what's more, he's suggesting that each person's eternal destiny will be determined based on how they have related to him in this life. And then he concludes the Sermon on the Mount by saying, whoever hears these words of mine, not whoever hears God's words, whoever hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. Every other religious teacher would be selfless and other-centered in their teaching. But Jesus was radically self-focused and self-centered in his teaching. So what do you make of that? Honestly, to me it suggests that either Jesus was a complete narcissist, in which case you really don't want to have anything to do with him, or he was God incarnate, or at least he really thought that he was. So in the spirit of the scribes who like to quote famous people in order to back up their arguments, let me give you a quote from a rock star. Here's something that Bono once said, the lead singer for the band U2. He was once asked what he thought about Jesus. And here's his reply. He says, look, the secular response to the Christ story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm not saying I'm a teacher. Don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I am God incarnate. And people say, no, 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 please, just be a prophet. 
A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric, but we had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word. Don't mention the Messiah word. Because if you do, we're going to have to crucify you. And Jesus says, no, no, I, I know you're expecting somebody else, but actually, I'm the Messiah. And at this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes. And they think to themselves, he's really going to say this. He's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is this. Either Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase. Now, if you're really paying attention to Jesus' words, not even in the entirety of the Gospels, just in the Sermon on the Mount, if you're paying attention to Jesus' words, the focus of his teaching, you realize either he was a narcissist or a nutcase, or he was God incarnate, the Messiah. He doesn't really leave us any other option. And that's why the crowds were astonished. But then finally, they were astonished by the force of Jesus' words. Now, do you see the force of his teaching? Do you see the thrust of his teaching? What is it that he's really driving at? What is Jesus trying to get across? Now, from the very beginning of this series, I said that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' vision for the good life. This is what it means to thrive. This is what it means to flourish as a human being from God's point of view, from the point of view of the one who made us, who loves us, who designed us, who knows how life works best. This is Jesus' vision for the good life. But what you realize through the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is not merely offering good advice. He's not telling you what you need to do in order to reach your way up to God. He's not telling you what you need to do in order to live your life well. The Sermon on the Mount is not a series of life hacks. Now, Jesus is trying to reveal something much more radical. Just think about it this way. The Sermon on the Mount is infinitely more difficult to live than the Old Testament. The Sermon on the Mount is infinitely more difficult to keep than the Law of Moses because it isn't merely focused on outward actions. It's also focused on inward attitude and motivation. Think of the contrast. What did Moses say? Moses said, you shouldn't murder people. That makes sense. But Jesus says, you shouldn't demean people either. Because if you demean people, it's as if you murdered them. So of course, it's wrong to kill people, but it's also wrong to kill people's reputations. Or what did Moses say? Moses said, you shouldn't sleep with somebody else's spouse. That sounds like good advice. But Jesus said, you also shouldn't fantasize about another person because it's as if you were sleeping with them. So, of course, you, it's wrong to sleep with somebody to whom you're not married, but it's also wrong to objectify another person in your imagination in order to gratify your own sexual desire. Do you realize how much more extreme the Sermon on the Mount is than the Old Testament law? So if you're hearing the Sermon on the Mount rightly, it should shock and offend you. You shouldn't read the Sermon on the Mount and think to yourself, oh, what exquisite, beautiful religious instruction. It should shock and offend you. Back in the fall, at the beginning of the series, I, I shared some anecdotes from Virginia Stem Owens, who was a college professor, and she was teaching English, and she offered first-year college students the opportunity to read the Sermon on the Mount 
which many of them had never read before, and then to write essay responses to it. And she was surprised by these responses, but also strangely pleased. Because what she realized is that biblical illiteracy had reached a point where now people could actually hear and respond to Jesus' words without filtering those words through 2,000 years of cultural haze. She said, honest, ignorant ears could finally hear the Sermon on the Mount for what it was, and they hated it. (laughs) They hated it. So I'll, I'll share some of these essay responses. One student wrote, I did not like the essay, Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read, and it made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Or another student said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman like that is adultery? To be angry or to insult someone is murder? Those are the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statements that I've ever heard. Sounds like a college freshman, right? But see, the point is, if you're not shocked and offended by the teaching of Jesus, then you're not listening. You're not listening. So what is the thrust of Jesus' teaching? What is he trying to get across? What he's trying to reveal to us is you cannot live the Sermon on the Mount by your own power. You cannot live the Sermon on the Mount on your own strength. You can't trust in your natural ability. The Sermon on the Mount is not sublime, beautiful teaching that lifts you to the heights. No, it crushes you to the dust when you realize the kind of life that God is calling us to, and that's why you have to come to Jesus. The thrust of his teaching is to show you you cannot live this life on your own. You have to rely on him rather than relying on yourself. It's not about trying to reach God through what you do. It's about receiving what God has done by reaching down to you in and through his son. So the force of his teaching shows us not that we're supposed to uphold some kind of principle, but rather we're supposed to rely on a person. It's not about upholding this abstract principle, but relying on the concrete person of Jesus. And that's what makes the Sermon on the Mount good news rather than good advice. It's not about how you reach up to God. It's about how God reaches down to you. Now, from the very beginning, I've said that through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not telling you what you need to do in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, but rather he's describing who you become when the presence and the power of God come into your life by sheer grace, when Jesus becomes the rock the center, the foundation of your life because he is the narrow gate that leads to life. He is the rock, the only rock upon which you can build a life. So the crowds were astonished because they understood the form, the focus, and the force of Jesus' teaching. But what about you? How will you respond to the Sermon on the Mount? So as we close, I'd like to offer three brief words to three different groups of people. One to the undecided, two to the dauntless, and three to the discouraged. See, first let me say something to the undecided. Maybe this is the first time you're hearing any of this, and therefore you're not sure what to think. Or maybe you have considered yourself as 
part of the crowd. You sort of observe Jesus. You've observed Christianity from the margins. And maybe you're impressed by some of the things that Jesus has had to say, but you haven't been changed by his words. And you've got to realize through this sermon that, that Jesus is pressing you to make a decision. He's pressing you to make a decision about him. You're either for him or against him. Either you think he's a narcissist or a nutcase or you think he is the Messiah. But there's no middle way. There's no third option. It's not enough to merely hear Jesus. You have to respond. So what's it going to be? Are you going to follow the crowd? Or are you going to take the narrow way that leads to life? Are you going to build your life on the rock or on the sand? See, the problem with uh, any house is that you can't really see the foundation from the outside. So let's imagine you've got two houses that look completely identical. They both look strong, sturdy, well-designed, well-built. They appear to be equally durable and stable. But you know what? You won't know until a storm rips through and lays bare the foundation. And what Jesus is asking all of us to do through the Sermon on the Mount is to examine the foundations of our life again. Examine the foundations of your life again. And let me just say, this is a really good place. Central is a really good place to do that. And that's why I, I would encourage you to get involved in a community group or a Bible study or the youth group. Because it's in community with others that we work out the implications of Jesus' message for our lives. What does this really look like in practice? You can't do that on your own. You need friends. You need a community of people to help you think things through. And I can promise you that this is a place where we won't resort to pressure tactics. There's not going to be any manipulation, no gimmicks, no tricks. We're going to give you the time and the space to process your doubts and your questions. This is a great place to do that. Just don't take too long. Don't take too long because you never know when a storm might hit. And as I mentioned last week, we're so excited because a number of people have indicated their interest in being baptized for the very first time. And we're thrilled to come alongside those of you who want to be baptized and to mark that significant moment in your life. And as we begin this season of Lent, we're going to use this 40-day period of preparation leading us to Easter to, to get people ready to be baptized in the months of April and May as part of the Easter season. So if you've never been baptized before, or maybe you've been baptized, but you need to recommit yourself to Jesus, you, you feel like you need to do something to mark this moment in your life, tell us. Let us know. Let me know. Let Chris know. Tell, tell the members of our prayer team after the service today. Let any of our elders or deacons or trustees know. Tell anybody on our staff. We would love to baptize you. We, we would love to help you think through how can you mark that moment when you recommit yourself to Jesus. And for those of you who are concerned about this, just remember we baptize adults differently than we baptize babies. So you saw Henry baptized a, a few moments ago, but if you are an adult or a student and you'd like to be baptized, I can make this personal pledge. I will not carry you in my arms. I will not walk you down the aisle as we sing Jesus loves me after sprinkling you with water. We baptize adults differently than children. So that's my message to the undecided. Here's a word for the dauntless. And by the dauntless, I mean 
those daring individuals who see nothing difficult in the Sermon on the Mount. See, some people think that Jesus' teaching is beyond the reach of anyone. But other people think that it is within the reach of everyone if we would only try hard enough. Some people think the Sermon on the Mount is entirely doable. All we have to do is commit ourselves to carrying it out. And Leo Tolstoy was one of those people. He wrote himself into the last novel he ever published, which was entitled Resurrection. Now, towards the end of his life, Tolstoy devoted himself to perhaps an overly literal interpretation of the teaching of Jesus, and then he expressed his personal views through the main protagonist in the novel Resurrection, Prince Nikilyadov. So one night, Nikilyadov rereads the Gospel of Matthew, and he concludes that the Sermon on the Mount is not filled with beautiful, abstract thoughts that present an exaggerated and impossible demand for us to fulfill? No. He believes that if we just followed these simple, clear, practical commands, we could build the kingdom of God on earth. See, Tolstoy thought that the Sermon on the Mount was completely doable, but you know why? Because he separated, he tried to separate the teaching from the teacher. So this is what Tolstoy writes. Nikilyadov sat staring at the light of the lamp that burned low and his heart stopped beating. Recalling all the monstrous confusion of the life we lead, he pictured to himself what this life might be like if people were taught to obey these commandments and his soul was swept by an ecstasy such as he had not felt for many a day. He didn't sleep that night. And as happens to vast numbers who read the Gospels, he understood for the first time the full meaning of words read and passed over innumerable times in the past. He said to himself, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But we seek all these things and obviously fail to attain them. This then must be my life's work. That night, an entirely new life began for Nikilyadov. Not so much because he had entered into new conditions of life, but because everything that happened to him from that time on was endowed with an entirely different meaning for him. How this new chapter of his life will end, the future will show. How this new chapter of his life will end, the future will show. Well, Tolstoy wrote those words in 1899. And how the new chapter of his life would end, only the future would show as well. In the winter of 1910, Tolstoy rushes out into a cold Russian evening. He contracts pneumonia, and then a few days later, he dies alone at a railroad station. Now, a few days prior to that moment, he decided that he was going to abandon his aristocratic lifestyle and he was going to commit himself to living out the Sermon on the Mount consistently and thoroughly. Now, it sounds good, doesn't it? Except that his friends and followers would later say, in reality, he was just trying to run away from his wife and family. Tolstoy became increasingly more radical in his views, but he alienated his friends and he introduced destructive 
conflict into his family, and family life, and therefore he died spiritually alone. He tried to separate the teaching from the teacher. And you know what ended up happening? He was filled with self-loathing. And he died hating his wife. And she hated him right back. You see, if you try to separate the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount from the teacher, it's not an inspiring, beautiful message. It is a crushing burden. It will destroy you, and maybe even the people you love the most. Tolstoy's problem is that he heard the demand in the Sermon on the Mount, but he didn't hear the grace. He didn't hear the grace in the Sermon on the Mount. And so that's why I'd like to close with this word for the discouraged. Maybe you're among those would-be disciples. You'd, you'd like to perhaps leave the crowd and truly follow Jesus, become a student, become an apprentice of his life, but you're confused and you're dispirited. You've always known that the Sermon on the Mount is there somewhere in the New Testament. You knew it was important, but maybe you never really knew how to read it or you don't see how you could possibly live it. And so you read through that sermon and you quickly come to the conclusion, well, whatever Jesus is describing here, this, this is not me. And I don't know how it could ever possibly be me. So it might seem as if there is no gospel, there is no grace in Jesus' sermon. But that's why we can't separate the teaching from the teacher. The only way we can live the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount is if we rely on the teacher, Jesus, rather than ourselves. If we try to live it on our own, we will fail. But if you turn to Jesus and you say to him, you know what, I can't, but you can, that's when things really begin to change. See, we have to remember that the same one who said, be perfect, as your heavenly father is perfect. The same one who said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The same one who said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. The same one who said, whoever hears my word and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. The same one who said, not an iota, not a dot will pass through the law until all is accomplished. The same one who said, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it is also the same one who said, I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's the same one who said, I have come not to be served, but to serve, and to give my life as a ransom for many. He's the same one who said, I have come to seek and to save the lost. See, don't you realize, if you separate the teaching from the teacher, this is a crushing weight. But if you hold them together, it's gospel. Because Jesus lived, suffered, died, and rose again so that you could, so that you could live the Sermon on the Mount. So read this sermon and let it knock you down. Let it force you back on your face and then drive you back to the very first verse. We will never get past those opening lines because how does Jesus begin the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, 
blessed are the spiritually inadequate. You have to acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. You've got nothing. You've got nothing to offer, nothing to give. You don't have the power to live the Jesus way. So mourn over your lack of resources. And like the meek, don't insist on your rights or getting what you deserve, but instead hunger. Hunger and thirst for that which only Jesus can provide and you will be satisfied. Ask, seek, and knock. And you know what? You'll be astonished. Because finally, for the first time, you'll begin to live the good life. The good life as defined by Jesus, not as a duty, but as a gift. Let me pray for us. Father, we pray that we wouldn't remain among the crowds, but that we would receive your great invitation to become your disciple, to become a student and an apprentice of your life so that your life might become our own. And so, Father, as we draw this series to a conclusion, let us be astonished. Let us be astonished by the form of Jesus' teaching. Let us be astonished by the focus of his teaching and let us be astonished by the force of his teaching. Help us to see that the Sermon on the Mount is not good advice, it's good news. You're not telling us what we need to do in order to reach you, you're telling us who we become when you reach us by your grace through your one and only Son. Help us to hold together the teacher and the teaching so that we might become the people that you have always destined us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.